Good afternoon. The date is October 7th. We've been away for a little bit, but we are back with show number two. And today we're talking about social media, social justice. In addition to that, we'll be joined with special guest, uh, Ernie Suggs of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And we'll be talking about social activism, particularly along the lines of the mute R. Kelly hashtag, especially in light of what's happened to him. In about five, four, three, two... Welcome back to another round of the Intellectual Soul Food Lunch Buffet. I am your sous chef and host, Dr. Russell Robinson, a.k.a. Doc Rob, and I've been joined again with our new crew and some veterans who also returning to us. Everyone, please check in. We'll start with Will LaMarch. Will, tell us who you are. Check in as usual. Hey, my name is Will LaMarch. I'm an English and communications major. Um, I'm doing pretty good. Glad you're joining us. We also have Ayani McKinney. Hi, Ayani. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Ayani McKinney. I'm an English literature major, and um, I'm doing pretty well today. I'm glad to have you with us. And then we're going to go to who else? We'll go to Raven Hawkins. Raven, give yourself a shout out. <laughs> yes, I'm Raven. I'm a mass communications major and doing pretty great today. We are glad that you've joined us. And we also are now going to go back to... Tia, who is also another co-producer, Will and Tia, they are co-producing the show today. Welcome. Check in for us, please. Tia. Hi, um, my name is Tia Kiaku. I'm a mass comm student and um, I'm doing well. Very glad you could join us. And we are then going to go to, if I can get out of this thing, <laughs> we'll then go back to our veteran, I'm about to give her EP credit because she does so much for the show. Miss Shania, hey, Shania, check in hey. with us. Hey, I'm Shania. I'm a mass comm major with a concentration in PR, and I'm excited to do the show today. We are so glad to have you all with us. And as you know, we have some formats that we changed in the new season. Um, and we want to make sure that we go ahead and start off with, of course, guess what? Our current events. So... Let's go down our list of current events. What are what's happening in the world in the past week and a half, two weeks? Someone start us off. We just recently had a situation with well, I wouldn't call it a situation, tragic situation, tragic story that of Gabby Pateo. Someone tell us something about that. So Gabby Pateo and her boyfriend were. Um, in charge of a Instagram travel blog um, and they were going across the country. Gabby went missing at one point um, and the boyfriend returned um, and it is very strongly suspected. And I believe as of recent confirmed that um, he did in fact murder her um, and they have found a body. Last I checked, at least they have found a body that um, does resemble her. Okay. Okay. And that actually leads us into a very interesting conversation about something called missing white woman syndrome. In fact, a TV anchor in Oakland, California, I believe his name is Frank Somerville. Frank Somerville was outed uh, because he actually began to start talking about this issue on a newscaster, tried to. Someone talk to me a little bit about that. And for someone who doesn't know the term missing white woman syndrome, can someone give me some detail about that? What exactly do we mean when we use the term missing white woman syndrome? Missing white. Oh, go, you ahead. Can go ahead. Okay. Well, missing white woman syndrome is basically when like a white woman clearly goes missing and like people in the world just go in this big uproar and like frenzy, whereas people of color go missing every day and like you don't get as much news coverage or press about it. So that's really what missing white um, woman syndrome is. Okay. And so as that's happening, you know, that's a rather interesting phenomenon because what happened recently with an African-American man that went missing? Who was that person? Anyone recall? Are you talking about Jelani Day? 
please tell us about Jelani Day. So Jelani Day was a student, I can't remember the university at the moment, um, but he was a student who went missing in August. And like, it wasn't big news until the Gabby Petito case came out and social media users started bringing light to other people of color who went missing men and women. And his case actually got really big. The Shade Room covered it a lot. And a few days after it started getting this big coverage, he was actually confirmed dead. And that was September 4th. Right. And so we're looking at disparity when you think about that, this issue of the lack of coverage when it comes to people of color, uh, particularly BIPOC or Black Indigenous people of color. And I think that's a very interesting piece that we need to begin to entertain more along the lines of politics, representation and so forth. What else has been going on in the world today that we know about, or at least in the past couple of weeks? Let me point to, I will point to Olivia. Is she with us? No, she's not. But the issue about Haitians at the border, Haitians at the border, and there was a social media response to that. Anyone care to give me some insight on that? So, Go ahead. Um, based on what I've seen off of social media, a lot of people are not happy about it because of the images that's been circling around of um, the people at the border beating on the Haitians and things of that nature. Oh, some of these images of Haitians at the border, what do they look like? Let's see if we can pull up an image of that. Haitians at the Texas border, they've been rather controversial especially this uh, video that we see here. Let me point to that. And it should be right here. This image that we're looking at right here of a man that appears to be being whipped on horseback. What do y'all think about that? Give me your impressions on just looking at this. Um, to me, it reminds me of like, it brings back like, you know, slavery times and things of that nature when, um, you know, slaves used to get beat by their slave owners and things. So that's what it reminds me of, of slavery um, and things of that nature. And there has been a big outcry about that. Very large outcry in regards to that. So I, I think, again, very interesting intersectional conversation. Something else, anyone else wanna pop into our current events with something that's happened recently? There's been a, does anyone remember this individual right here? An actor by the name of Michael T or Michael K. Williams. Let's pull him up so we can see who he is. Michael K. Williams. Does anyone know what TV show he's most popular for? Or a few of them actually. Okay, so I'm the only one that realizes about the show, The Wire. Homework assignment. If you have not had an opportunity, please do yourself a favor. Go watch The Wire. Uh, it is a tragedy that he passed away. And to me, it is an injustice. But he was never really recognized for his work on that show. Uh, he was one of the first outwardly gay black men portrayed, or at least portrayed any dramatic television show in the sense that he was a black gay thug. And this rumor has it that he passed away of a drug overdose. Does anyone know anything about that? Um, yes, they said he was found um, in his apartment in New York next to his nephew. Okay. And does anyone know the possible cause? Apparently they're saying it was a fentanyl overdose. So again, I'm saying apparently because I don't want to act as though that I know all of it. We know it all. Well, we can Google it up, which we are going to possibly do. But the issue is about fentanyl. And what exactly is fentanyl? Does anyone know what fentanyl is? It's like a drug. It's an opioid. And all I know about it really is it's a prescription drug and that a lot of people die from it. Um, like hold on, a lot hold of stuff on. now is getting like laced with fentanyl and you can't really tell the difference between what is fentanyl and what isn't, especially when it's like powdery. So I know a lot of people have been dying from fentanyl recently. 
Right, according to our Google thing called Socrates versus Google, fentanyl is a narcotic. It can treat severe pain. It is a controlled substance. Uh, there's a high risk for dependency and addiction and so forth, and taken at high doses combined with other substances, especially alcohol. And apparently there was a massive fentanyl overdose in the African-American theater, uh, theater uh, comedy community not too long ago. And I think that's something that we need to keep our eye out on so far. So yes, that's what's happening, at least in the past two weeks with current events. We've got a lot of things to talk about today, um, particularly as it lies to the notion of social media and social justice. Does anyone want to try to get us ready for that? Or do we want to go ahead and take a quick break and begin the conversation and wait for our special guest to join us? What do you say? Should we go ahead and take a quick break? How about we take a quick break? What do you say? We'll see you in roughly 30 seconds. There's a place to share gossip about the office party fun and a place to share the story you tell everyone. There's a place to share a laugh about when things went wrong and a place to share the video of you dancing to your song. There's a place to share spare change, lunch, and your time. But we could all be better at sharing how we're feeling inside. 76% of employees have struggled with at least one issue that affected their mental health. When you share, you're not alone. Welcome back, everybody. And we are talking about social media, social justice. And we are now about to hit, again, our topic of the day, which is social media or social justice. What exactly does that mean? What does that look like? So let's begin to have that conversation. What do we mean when we talk about the term social justice? Anyone want to take a crack at that? Social justice is um, getting justice for people who have been uh, traditionally marginalized um, in other communities or in, um, in American society specifically, um, or at least uh, that's my definition that's relevant for uh, today's episode, um, but that it's about making sure that they are represented and that they are seen in the way that they want to be represented and they want to be seen. Someone else want to check in with that? Who else? I'll go to Tia. Tia, what do you believe it means? Social media, social justice. Um, social media, social justice to me means um, people getting what they deserve and everyone getting their justice equally. And sometimes there's dis disparities in that. And so some marginalized groups have been focused on and they have been pushing their agenda and what they believe in through social media. Okay. Anybody else want to take a stab at that? Shania. To me, social justice is just, I believe what society would deem as justice. Um, in different aspects of society. So this could be like housing or schools or X, Y, and Z. Um, but yeah, I believe it's just what society sees as justice. Okay. Anyone else before we move into our, our points of discussion? Ayani, Raven, what does social media and social justice mean to you? I was just about to say something. But, um, I feel like social justice is basically, I guess you could say, justice for like for everyone. Um, just not like a particular group or you know, a particular cause or anything like that. That's okay. what I feel like social justice is. We have a question that comes to us from Jarahawa Hayes, and she talks about something that just recently happened. Uh which kind of ties in line with social justice movements via the social media. Recently, she talks about someone defaced a George Floyd statue. How do you all feel about the defacing of the George Floyd statue that happened a few days after the unveiling? Good question. Does anyone want to talk about that or tackle that? Yes. Um, me personally, I feel very disgusted. Um, my heart goes out to his family because I feel like that was really messed up of whoever decided to deface the um, statue. 
So um, I'm really disgusted and I'm just really confused on like why and what was the reasoning behind defacing this statue. Okay. Anyone else? I definitely agree, especially the part about the family. Um, I think George Floyd definitely died a martyr and just he's the face of this like big social media, social justice stuff that happened in 2020. So he gets a lot of the fall for like the ignorant racist people in this world. And it sucks because his family has to deal with that. And to them, he just their son or their dad or uncle who died. So it's kind of sad to see how people will disrespect someone in that way. So let's try to go ahead and give, I guess, a quick timeline of social media and how it kind of intersected with social justice um, and even the impact of social media and how it was able to have an impact even on politics as a whole. We talked about this earlier. Someone give me an example of how the internet, the internet, social media played a role in the election of Barack Obama as president. Anyone want to take a stab at that? Well, I know when he was running for president and whatnot, um, a lot of that's when like memes really first started generating and um, things of that nature. So I guess like when people used to create memes about him and it got around and um, yeah. Anybody so. else? So let's take a look at what we have with the, Q, uh, the Pew Center. The Pew Center talks about this to a great degree. They talk about this, and I'm going to share the screen if I can pull it up. And it offers this. It says that more than half the adult population in 2008 used the Internet or were online for the 2008 presidential campaign. It goes into other detail. It basically tells us that, if I can make the screen any bigger, we'll try that later. It tells us basically that, let's see, three quarters or 74, 74% of the internet users were online during the 2008 election to take part in it or to get news about it and so forth. This represents 55% of the entire adult population and marks for the first time that the Pew Internet and American Life Project has found that more than half of the voting age population use the internet to connect to uh, it for political processes during the election cycle. They also went into sort of more detail as we can see here. They go in and talk about, uh, they've aggregated the users. Uh, let's see. So you had users who went online for news about politics. That was roughly 60% of the internet usage. Communicating with others about politics and using the internet, that was 38% of the internet usage, and sharing or receiving campaign information using specific tools such as email, instant messaging, text messages, or Twitter, fully 59% of its users. So as you can tell, the internet or online programming or social media in this regard played a powerful role in getting a person elected to political office. Talk to me about what that means as far as the power of social media. What does that mean when we talk about the concept of the global village, when we talk about the notion of the public sphere? Anyone? I think with um, the, global, uh, the global village that um, specifically with uh, you know, the election of, and like, I, uh, I'm going to talk more about um, Trump just since that was one I was there for uh, and remember more. Um, that was a lot of people chiming in online to share their thoughts and um, a lot of internet discourse. Um, like I had been aware of the internet and that people were fighting, but it wasn't up until that election that I really knew how much um debate and discourse really happened there and that I kind of got this look at, wow, there's a lot of horrible people who just feel so open voicing it. Um, and so I kind of think that there is the global village in the internet, but there's also like smaller public spaces as well. Uh, echo chambers kind of, but it's more so like 
well, actually, exactly, where people feel so comfortable saying, um, I think this thing, I think that thing within these smaller spaces uh, that aggregate more people over time. Um, and I actually read something interesting on it um, just the other day about how certain gateway uh, concepts, that's not the word they use, but concepts that lure people into bigger conspiracy theories into uh, much more dangerous beliefs. We have a question that comes from one of our classroom audience members, Tyson Dew. He makes this point. He asks, how big of an impact do you all think social media has on political changes? Good question. You all the content experts of the day. How big of an impact do you think social media has on our political process? Will, you alluded to it. Someone else take us to the next level with that. Um, I think it has a really big impact on people's like opinions and like how they vote. Um, one, people are rarely like have their own opinions. So like opinions usually are formed through seeing other people talk about things, whether it be someone who's actually educated in the topic or not, or just seeing it on your Facebook timeline. And when we were, when Will was saying his piece, it made me start thinking about just the spread of like misinformation with the Obama campaign and with the Trump. Um, I think for Trump, the term became like internet misinformation came a lot bigger. But I remember with the Obama campaign, how like it was all these lies about like his race and like where his parents were from and like, was he really from here? And like all this stuff and all these people believed it. So I do think social media plays a huge part because you can tailor your timeline to feed your opinion and like really live and die by that opinion if you wanted to. So I mentioned two terms earlier. I mentioned the global village and the public sphere. I want to take a minute to backpedal on that. And I want us to go back and try to unpack what those terms are, because I think those are important as we begin to go deeper inside of this conversation about the social media, social justice connection. Who here recalls what do we mean and who talked about it? Um, and I'll help you. His name is Marshall McLuhan. What did Marshall McLuhan talk about with the notion of the global village? Raven. Um, the interconnectedness of the media around the world with the global. Okay, and, and, and go into some detail with that. If we're talking about the interconnectivity of people, what does that do as far as the sharing of information? What does that do about culture? How does that bridge a gap, if you will, or bridge a divide that may exist? Anybody? Tia? Um, it makes it, it makes people's opinions in that bridge a lot less, like a lot more accessible. That's what like technology does in social media. Right. And so if we think about the communications platforms of the day, what did it used to look like? Being that I'm the person with the gray hair in the room, I can probably talk to you a little bit about that, provided we get Brother Suggs in here any minute or Mr. Suggs. Professional subs. We're not fraternity brothers. He's an alpha. I'm a kappa. That's another story. But the main thing here is, is that in the time before time, how do we communicate? What was it like? Did we communicate using social media? No. We communicated using electromagnetic spectrum. In many cases, we would go ahead and put in the airwaves. We'd use satellites. We'd also use wires, telephone wires. We would use cable lines and so forth. Now, with the advent of the telecommunications or telephony boom, if you will, of the, the mid-90s, things changed dramatically, and you began to see the upsurge of internet service providers. Uh, you began to see the upsurge of digital subscriber lines, or DSL, broadband. And as that happened, we were able then to communicate much more effectively, more efficiently, and so forth. Enter Web 2.0 technology. Web 2.0 technology, what does that mean? And that means your things like what we're doing here now, running a show basically from our homes. It means we can go ahead and take video and put it out there in the internet or the social sphere or the public sphere that Hammerboss talks about. 
and or it means that we can also share culture. So what do you think we mean now when we talk about social justice? What is justice? What is social justice? And how does that tie into some things that have happened recently? Will, and I think Tia and even Iyani, you all mentioned George Floyd. Talk to me about hypothetical. What does social justice mean first? And how did social media impact social justice? Anyone? I think social media impacts social justice the way I've seen it growing up with social media in a sense was that we can see whatever is going on like at any moment. So like the way I mean that is like body cam footage, like how that's a thing now because people started recording their interactions with cops and like how like dangerous it was for a person of color, specifically black people. So when I think of social media, social justice, that's where my mind goes. Very good. And speaking of social media and social justice, I now want to welcome the man, the myth, the legend, the NCCU legend, proud member of Gamma Beta Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, and the man who, in my honest opinion, is the next editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Mr. Ernie Suggs. Welcome to the Intellectual Soul Food Lunch Buffet. We are happy to have you here with us. Check in and tell us about yourself. You're muted. <laughs> You're still muted. Can we hear you? Okay, we got a little bit of a technical difficulty. You got your, are you plugged in with your mic, Ernie? I think you hear us. Can anyone else hear Ernie? Because I can't. <laughs> what is the platform you're using? We're going to give them some time to go ahead and work that out. But um, Ernie, I'll fill you in on the conversation. Hopefully you can join in. I'll let people know why we have Ernie with us today. Uh, Ernie is not only an alum of NCCU, but he also... Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Had a brother scared. <laughs> yeah, all, that, all that stuff you said about me, now you're like, I can't even log on, so... <laughs> We are happy to have you with us. Um, Ernie, check in. Tell us who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you. Sorry I'm late. Sorry I couldn't uh, figure out how to get on. But my name is Ernie Suggs. I'm a reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I've been here for 24 years now. I am a proud graduate of North Carolina Central University, having graduated in 1990, the class of 1990. Um, as you mentioned, uh, I'm a member of Gamma Beta, Spring 89. I'm from Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. I was born in Brooklyn. So uh, I was born in Brooklyn and went to high school in North Carolina. Um, then after I graduated, I kind of floated around different places. I went back to New York City to work. I uh, came back to Durham to work at the Herald Sun. I moved here to work. Um, I took a break from here to go to Cambridge to go to Harvard. Um, and now I'm back. So now I'm back here and um, I'm working from home, as you can see. And uh, life is pretty good. Life is good. Well, we are so happy that you have taken time out of your busy, busy schedule to talk Oh, no, I, I, I appreciate you inviting me. Yes. So these are my students, some of them. I have other students who are in the background. And please feel free to ask Ernie questions along the way. But you're also a guest here, so we get to ask you some very important questions in regards to what we're talking about. So All we're right. talking about social media and social justice. Talk to us about it from the inside. You had the opportunity to actually see a social justice movement born from the ground up. And that was the Mute R. Kelly movement. Tell us something about that. Yeah, well, you know, R. Kelly used to live here. That's kind of tangential to this whole story. You all know the story of R. Kelly. Uh, some of you guys are probably too young, but Dr. Dr. Rob and I, for as long as we've been adults, R. Kelly has been kind of in the musical zeitgeist. And he's always been kind of that kind of musical Pied Piper, so to, if so, if you if you will, who has had this reputation of attracting young women and abusing young women. So this trial that has happened um, has been a long time coming. Uh, these these are you know if you watch the Boondocks, 
there was an episode of the Boondocks 15 years ago that talked about this. So with Atlanta being kind of this cultural hotspot, this cultural melting place, this Mecca, so to speak, uh, we have a lot of smart activists down here. And when R. Kelly was living down here and when he was really starting to, when the heat was starting to get up against him, a group of young women activists started this thing called Mute R. Kelly. Now, they started this because R. Kelly, as I said, he had been getting away with so much. You know, we as a culture had forgiven him so many times for this alleged abuse of these women. Um, so there was a point where, you know, and I, I, I actually encourage you all to look at that Boondocks episode for, for a little bit of, of satirical context. But whenever R. Kelly would get in trouble, he would get out of trouble and black people and his fans would continue to support them. So these two women who started Mute R. Kelly was like, you know, look, we need to really take a look at ourselves as a black community. And we also need to hold radio stations and concert venues and streaming services accountable for, for promoting this man who has been alleged to have done all these horrible things to young black women. And the arg argument also is, is that if these were white women, if these were white girls, would he have the same grace, particularly amongst the black community? So they started this program, Mute R. Kelly. And after they started it, they had that documentary, which they weren't a part of, but it was kind of based on their work about uh, surviving R. Kelly. So over the last four or five years, this whole tide started turning against R. Kelly, led by these women who said, you know, enough is enough. We need to start protecting our black women. Uh, and that's how it kind of got um, started. They weren't involved in the trial at all, uh, but their overall presence in muting him and bringing attention, uh, the plight of these young black women and the, the, um, the crudeness of his actions, uh, I believe, led to his ultimate downfall. Thank you for that excellent synopsis here. So the question then, let's think about this in the social media sense. How were they able to really get the, the traction in the Twitter sphere with black Twitter and others to really bring a, a lot of overdue attention to the situation. What do you think about that? Well, that's the thing they leverage, they leverage their contacts and they leverage social media. This is not, you know, Atlantis is the birth, Atlantis is the birthplace of the civil rights movement. And what they mean by that is that because we had all these intellectual minds here who were able to mobilize people all over the country during the civil rights movement, and in Birmingham and Little Rock and, and, and Jacksonville and, and, and Raleigh and Durham and Greensboro, they were able to mobilize these people, but it was also it was always about word of mouth and it was by marching. Now things are different. Now you have social media. The Black Lives Matter movement is largely a social media driven movement. Uh, you know, last year after the George Floyd killings and after Rayshard Brooks was killed here in Atlanta, we had um, an, an example. This is kind of going off a little bit. But an example, Atlanta was one of those cities that burned after the George Floyd, uh, not the verdict, but after George Floyd was killed, right after right after George Floyd was killed, a man named Rayshard Brooks was killed here in Atlanta. The city basically literally caught on fire. You know, kids were all over the town, tearing up downtown and setting police cars on fire. All of that was organized within a day after George Floyd's death, within a day on social media. So it's not like we're put, they're putting ads in the newspaper. It's not like they're, you know, getting out on a corner and with a bullhorn and saying, hey, we're going to march and we're going to put out flyers. It's all done now during, on social media. So by that same token, these women who did the Mute R. Kelly thing, their main vehicle for communicating was through social media. And, you know, that's where it is now. That's, that's where it is now. You know, you, people aren't buying ads. They're not dependent upon newspapers. You know, we wrote stories about it. But they didn't need us. Technically, they didn't need us to write stories because they have their own bully pulpit. They have their own mechanism of getting the word out. And it's very efficient. Very good. All right, class. So, I mean, you have the expert with you, a journalism expert. I can't tell you any more than he can. So I'm going to pivot to him. And I want y'all to hit him with some questions because this is an excellent learning opportunity. He's given us his time. Let's use it. So um, I have a question. 
Okay. Hello. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. That's good. So um, during the first like R. Kelly trial, like how did this like um affect you, affect your business or anything like that? Like how did that um affect you? How did it affect me personally or, or professionally? I'm um, sorry. Well, professionally, um, like, did you notice that more people were tuning in to see if you guys were getting more updates about it or yeah. Well, I mean, uh, R. Kelly is a is a major he's a major figure culturally, for good or for bad. So, and we cover culture here in in, in Atlanta. Uh, you know, Atlanta is you know, we have a huge hip hop scene. We have a huge soul scene. We just had a huge concert last week with Gladys Knight and Patti LaBelle. Gladys Knight, obviously, being from Atlanta, so we have a deep, long tradition of music and culture here. So when you know R. Kelly first went on trial, I wrote a column, and I can send you, I can send that column uh, that asked, that questioned us as Black people as to why we still listen to R. Kelly. And you know, I got to be honest with you, I was never a huge fan of R. Kelly, but you know, I appreciated his music. But I took his music off of my iPod because I felt that this guy, you know, and it's you know, it's always guilty, innocent until proven guilty, but. All of the evidence, you know, the, the marriage to Aaliyah, the 15-year-old Aaliyah, all of the stuff that had been coming up over the last 20 years, that I finally decided I'm not, I'm not going to listen to him anymore. So I wrote a column that said that, and it questioned our Black people about why are we still listening to this guy? Why are we making excuses for him? Why um, are people posting memes of, 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 of Jerry Lee Lewis who married his 13-year-old uh, cousin. Now, Jerry Lee Lewis married his 13-year-old cousin, which is bad, but you, you get these memes to suggest that, oh, Jerry Lee Lewis did it, therefore R. Kelly did it, and they're both, he should be fine with it, or we should be fine with R. Kelly doing it because Jerry Lee Lewis did it. But that's not, a that's not to me, a fair equivalency because they both committed crimes. So, you know, I wrote that story, got a lot of backlash or, you know, I got a lot of backlash from people who was like, you know, well, it's all about the music and it's all about, you know, his music makes me, makes me feel good. And we don't know what these girls were doing and these girls were fast and, you know, all this stuff. So, you know, so the, the, the overall, the column got a lot of good, good comments, but there was a considerable amount of, of negative backlash because people love R. Kelly. And even today. People are still writing, writing us and sending us notes. Um, there, you know, I, I'm I'm very good friends with the women who are or supporting Mute R. Kelly. They're getting death threats. You know, they you know people are talking about them. You know, so the, R. Kelly is always going to be like this mysterious or not mysterious, but this polarizing figure. You know, even when you know he's going to probably rot in jail and die in jail, but he's always going to be a polarizing figure that a lot of people feel has gotten railroaded. Although if you followed that trial, and again, I'm not judging it, but if you followed that trial every day like I did, you know, nothing good was coming out of what he was doing to those girls. Everything that every everything that he was doing to those girls is stuff that all of us would kill a man if he did that to our sister or mother or daughter. So that's it. Yeah, that's yeah. So 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 let me raise this question because I think this is kind of I think the timeliness of this is relevant. Uh, and hint, next time we come out, folks, we're going to be talking about Dave Chappelle. So you need to watch the Dave Chappelle comedy special because I think we're talking about canceling as well. Mm -hmm. So the, the reality here when we think about the Me Too movement, um, the Me Too movement, the hashtag of it, that literally was a watershed moment. Do you think that with R. Kelly, Bill Cosby and others, do you think they were kind of like, caught in the watershed of that because I think a large part of that comes out from, this is just me, you had a person who talked about groping a woman who was running for president of the United States and he never got held accountable for that. But then suddenly you saw this whole piece of social hashtag activism, Me Too movement, and I agree. The things that R. Kelly has been found guilty of are the things that would wind me. So I will catch a couple of cases for that myself. So the question is, is do you think that the Me Too movement, do you think that with what happened to R. Kelly and Bill Cosby, 
Do you think they were, I wouldn't even say casual, do you think they were low-hanging fruit in the Me Too movement? And I guess the other question too is, is do you think that there also is, are, we, are the people being tried in social media versus court? I know it's a long loaded well, question, but. I think the Me Too movement has helped in a sense of, of getting this out in the forefront, getting it out in social media, getting it out in front of all of us. Cause you know, this has been, you know, doc, this has been happening since before we were in college, before we right. were kids, men, particularly powerful men have preyed upon vulnerable women. They've done that. John Kennedy did it. I'm sure Roosevelt did it. You know, Alexander Hamilton did it. I'm sure. Right. So, you know, so the Me Too movement, because it's been promoted by social media and because social media has been able to be that propeller to get it out there, has come at a bad time for people like R. Kelly and Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein and um, Epstein. They, Epstein the, the, um, so it's come at a bad time when this movement is so powerful and these powerful men are being... Um, the, the the poster child for the Me Too movement. So you have these men, you have a you have a population, a country that's fed up with the way women are being treated. Right. And just so happens that Bill Cosby, R. Kelly, they just got caught up in a time. Now, again, R. Kelly has been doing this for 20 years. We've known about Aaliyah since before she died and she's been dead for 20 years. So we've known about this for 25 years. We've known about Bill Cosby, you know, for 50 years. You know, me and I probably didn't know about it, but people knew about Bill Cosby. They knew what he was doing. They knew what Harvey Weinstein was doing when he was, you know, getting these young actresses, you know, to to do things, to be in roles or blackballing them. We knew what Jeffrey Epstein was doing when he was flying all these girls to his island. Right. We knew what was going on, but what the Me Too movement has done has given these women a voice, has given all women a voice to say, this is not right. And when that voice is activated and when that voice has a vehicle like social media, it's obviously a very, very powerful and different way of, of getting that story out. You know, do, you, do you think though that with social media, with the Me Too movement, do you think that the black women who are behind that are getting their proper credit for establishing that movement? Oh yeah, they are. They are. I mean, um, Olya Deli um, in 2019. I mean, I know this is not a definitive list, but right. the Root Magazine's one top 100 people, most influential people. She was number five, and okay. number one was Stacey Abrams, and you know, I think number two was Oprah Winfrey. So yeah, they are getting their recognition for what they have done because you know he went to court and he you know Jim Digger goddess over at the Chicago Tribune has been writing about this forever. forever. And he went to court, but it can be argued that had not been for Mute R. Kelly, this would not have gotten the traction that it has gotten over the last five years, three or four years, to finally put this man behind bars. We appreciate that. Yeah. Other questions from the art from the students. I know you got some questions. As long as hard as it took me to get log on. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all better don't have some me, questions. Don't let me call you out, Tia. <laughs> I know you have a question, Tia. Mm, um, let's see. So when it comes to, like you were talking about how you think that Black women got the same, like, justice, do you, I know that, like, um, when it was started, it was started by a Black woman, and then it gained traction after a white woman spoke about the hashtag me too. But how do you account for like the disparities that comes into social media when it comes to social justice? What do you mean disparities? Like, um, well, when it comes to social media, um, certain agendas are pushed more on mm -hmm. certain platforms. And sometimes some creators and some um, activists who start certain things don't necessarily get the, the justice or get the recognition initially that they deserve. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like, how do you, that's, that's one of those, that's one of those things where people's work has always been um, taken for granted. And, you know, we have to be careful as to how we present our work so that we can preserve our work. You know, well, I think one of the examples you're talking about is how like 
and I think it, it was Atlanta. Everything everything germinates for germinates from Atlanta. But a young girl who was like this had this TikTok dance. I don't know if you ever saw that. And she was it was a great TikTok dance or whatever. And a white person appropriated it, put it on TikTok or Twitter or whatever, and it became this huge thing. People magazine covered it. Good Morning America covered it. He made money from it. And this black girl from Atlanta became kind of lost in the whole thing. So I think it's kind of important. It's kind of, you know, social media is also one of those things where, you know, it's just a, you know, a chance as to when people see it or how people absorb it. You know, I tweet every day for work or, you know, for whatever. And sometimes I'll tweet something and I'm thinking it's going to get a million retweets and hits and it doesn't get anything. Then I'll tweet something else and it blows up. Like yesterday I tweeted about that guy. I don't know if you watch Jeopardy. And I tweeted about the guy who has won like 35 games in a row. And I said, you know, this guy's never going to lose a match. And that was just a tweet, you know. And it got like hundreds of likes and retweets and Jeopardy retweeted it. And it became something that was trending on Twitter. And it was just something that I tweeted. It was like an offhand little comment that I tweeted. But then if I tweet something important or if I tweet one of my stories, you know, and I'm looking at, looking at it all day and no one notices it or whatever. So I think with social media, unless you are a major influencer, like, you know, Kim Kardashian or Rihanna or somebody like that, um, Beyonce, although Beyonce doesn't tweet at all, um, then it's going to be kind of a, a, a potluck or crapshoot to get your, your, your stuff noticed. Um, and it's just kind of like, you know, we just got to keep trying, I guess. We have a question that comes from the audience and it's interesting. Why do you think people that were surrounded themselves by, and I'm taking the spelling in for her. Why do you think people that were surrounded by these men who were doing these things never said anything all these years? I think it's, I think it's uh, several things. I think it's, you know, the proximity to power, you know, they want to be part of that power. They want to be, they want to, you know, ride in the jets and get the, you know, be around beautiful women themselves and be around celebrities. But I also think it was like, you know, it was almost probably like a, a reward system where they were probably getting some of the rewards of what these powerful men were doing. And I think it's also just a matter of, 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 of disregard for the black female body or for the, or for the female body. You know, when you disregard somebody, if you're, if you're hanging around our Kelly for one, and I'll just use R. Kelly as an example because we have several men like this. But if you're hanging around R. Kelly and he's doing these things that he's doing and you're seeing this every day. And again, I encourage you all to kind of read uh, some of the some of the correspondence surrounding the trial to see some of the just despicable things that he was doing to these women and boys and men. Um, and if you're still hanging around this guy and knowing that he's doing this stuff, then there's something wrong with you also. And you're obviously you're very complicit. So if you're complicit and you're staying with this guy while he's doing this stuff, then you want to be around him and you're not going to tell, you're not going to give up your gravy train because you know, you're getting money. You're getting to travel the world. You're getting to be with these girls as well. So, you know, and you know, it's your friend, you know, it's like, you know, it's, I mean, I hate to put it this way, but, you know, it's like, you know, what do you what would you do? You know, if you were hanging out with these guys, if you, these were your friend, this is R. Kelly's your friend and he's doing this stuff. And, you know, uh, yeah, we disassociate yeah. myself immediately. I mean, yeah, that's just yeah. me. I think. Yeah, I think we all would. But I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of people, the, a lot of these people are hangers on, you know, these they don't have much going for them. So where are they going? They're going to go back to school. They're going to go back to college. They're going to go back to IBM where they work, or they're going to stick around and say yes to R. Kelly and get paid two thousand dollars a week just to say yes to R. Kelly. So, well, I mean, that's a hard choice. Yeah. Last couple of questions for you because I have one that I want to raise to you, but then I'll go to the last ones for the students as well. But this is a question I want to raise. We talk about cancel culture a lot. Cancel culture. Mm -hmm. How did we cancel someone before there was social media? Because we, there were people who did some things that were just far out there. How do we cancel them before we would say we're going to cancel you in a hashtag? That's a great question. I'm trying to think of somebody who we perhaps canceled before social media. Uh, I mean, like, you know, like maybe like, you know, maybe like Michael just, Jackson. 
Michael Jackson a little bit, maybe like Pee Wee Herman. I don't know if any, any of you all know Pee Wee Herman. Pee Wee Herman. We canceled Pee Wee. Well, we did cancel Pee Wee, actually. Yeah. Remember that? You remember that? Yeah. Look up Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that Pee Wee Herman was somebody that we canceled before cancel, cult before cancel culture became something. And I think it was just different forms. I think we all take different forms. Like now, you know, how do we ever get from point A to point B while we, you and I were in college without right. a GPS? So I think that, you know, we always we always find ways to do things um, that that as we adapt to whatever our environment tells us to adapt to. Um, I don't know how we canceled people. I may, I don't know. Maybe we didn't buy their records or maybe they weren't being given the opportunities to make records or make movies. But well, we tried um, to cancel Mike Tyson when he had to go down for his sexual indiscretions. We tried to, but Mike made a comeback. Yeah, Mike made it. Mike Michael Jackson made a comeback. You know, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think that, you know, R. Kelly may come back. So I think, you know, cancel get culture. recording studio in prison now. I mean, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, I think cancel culture is also contingent upon who we're canceling. Okay. And why we're canceling. Sometimes it doesn't stick. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And it's just a matter of, you know, if, if we're canceling somebody, because like, R. Kelly is a perfect example. R. Kelly is someone we canceled and we tried to cancel. But R. Kelly has been resilient because even today, even though he's been convicted, even though he's been on trial for a year, there's still people out there who still love him. I mean, I think um, YouTube announced yesterday that they were taking all of his channels off of YouTube. So you right. can't find any of his videos anymore on YouTube. So he's being canceled, but <laughs> he's always going to have a contingent of people around him. And I think, you know, and I, and I, I don't know why the only person I can think of is, is, is Pee Wee Herman. Pee Wee Herman has kind of reinvented himself. The Pee Wee Herman character is gone, but um, Paul Rubens is mm -hmm. acting. He's acting in small roles. He's not, you know, he's not this mega star he was in the 1980s, but he's cutting a living as an actor, you know. Right. I think but another one I would say with George Michaels, we tried to cancel him too. From yeah. Wham. Yeah, so that's yeah. Last questions before we let Mr. Suggs go, because he has to write some stuff. Hopefully he'll pub us up in his, uh, his next article. But um, any questions you all have for him, because I don't want to take up all of the man's time. He's got a lot of stuff to do. No, go ahead. Whatever you got. Whatever you got. How much of the activism in uh, the Me Too movement do you think was just performative like it just stayed on social media and people didn't do anything uh actionable with it no that's a great question i think a lot of stuff on social media is performative and i think a lot of stuff you know people you know social media as you know as you saw earlier this week is addictive you know whether or not you know facebook is manipulating what we see or facebook is gone we saw the results of that this week when facebook and instagram left how people were kind of, you know, un unnerved by that. So I think a lot of what we see is performative. A lot of times that people who start these movements and people who keep these movements going are doing it for reasons to keep themselves relevant, to make money. Um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, you've seen all these articles this summer about, you know, uh, the legitimacy of that organization as an organization, not as a concept. Um so, yeah, so some of it is performative, but I think that when you really get down to the deepness of them, whether it's Black Lives Matter or Me Too or Meet R. Kelly, there is some genuine interest and genuine concern about what the what the situation is to, you know, to change things and to change things. And I think for the most part, they have been good for the culture, good for the zeitgeist, good for the country. We need them. You know, social media, if it has not done anything else, it has given um, it has given us a new way to protest and a new way to get ideas out there to a lot of people very quickly. So for that, I think it's a very positive thing. Do we have people who are opportunists? Sure, but I think that you know when you see what the results of Me Too and Black Lives Matter and R. Kelly have been, then I think that you have to to err on the side of they've been good for us. But you got to also, at the risk of playing devil's advocate, I don't like using that term because the devil doesn't need an advocate, but you also got to take a look at the bad of this too. Because mm -hmm. let's think about what happened on January 6th and we go back to Parler. 
and you had the president at the time who literally he took it straight from the Obama playbook. He used social media to become president, and then he used social media to spread disinformation. And you had an insurrection. Talk to us about the negative of that as well. Yeah, well, yeah, with the good, there's the bad. I mean, you know, um, Parler, and I think it's a new one called Getter, Getter or Get Out or something. Those are those are places where people are going to to be validated, to get confirmation as to how they believe, to what they believe. Black Twitter, you can argue, is the same way. You know, you go to Black Twitter to get confirmation about what you believe, and you know, social media can be good and it can be bad. And I think that, like I said earlier, you know, with the way things happen, with the, what things happened this week, with the revelations about Facebook, then the very next day we're losing Facebook for about six or seven hours, shows you just how dependent we have become on social media. And, you know, I was talking to, I don't know if you all know Nicole Hannah-Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a good friend of mine. And she's been off of Facebook for about four years. And she and I were talking this week. We talk a lot. She and I were talking this week. And she said that for the first four days that she got off of Facebook, the anxiety was at an all-time high. But after that first week, she doesn't even miss it. It's like, like, you know, there's been this whole big boulder lifted off of her shoulder because she doesn't have to deal with that anymore. And she was dealing. She's still on Twitter, which is, is, is just as toxic as Facebook. But, you know, this is a person who is a very... Um, no, you know, she's very well known. She's very, you know, controversial. And she just decided, you know, for, for my self-interest and for my mental health, I'm going to get off of Facebook, despite the fact that, you know, I got a lot of friends and my family communicated with me on it. I'm just going to get off of it. And she said she has not looked back after those first four days. So I think that social media can be good and it can be bad, obviously. And people who are going to use Parla, people who are going to... Um, are going to gather around these, you know, these black sites that, you know, no one knows about but them and gather information and spread information and spread misinformation because that's, you know, being a newspaper reporter covering race and politics, I get it every day. Um, I get emails every day. I get tweets every day about, you know, the election was stolen and people really believe that the election was stolen. People really believe that, you know, votes were miscounted and Russian bots or, or Chinese bots came in here and changed all these votes for Joe Biden and didn't change the votes for all the other Republicans and all these other states who won. So I still don't kind of get that. So, you know, people are going to believe what they want to believe. That's kind of the, the problem with social media. But that was probably, that was probably, again, you asked a question about how did we cancel people before cancel culture? I'm sure that before social media, people still believed what they wanted to believe and went to sources that they knew would align with their um, understanding of life to get validation and confirmation. Do you think we've become less critical as a society because of social media? No, I don't say we, I don't think we've become less critical. I think we've become less tolerant because of social media. We become more um, apt to um, hide behind uh, social media, hide behind keyboards to, you know, say things that we wouldn't normally say. I mean, you wouldn't believe the things that I get called and and said, um, said to, which is just amazing. So I think that, you know, and I think, you know, a lot of people said, you know, you know, Donald Trump showed America who we really are because he brought out, you know, he brought, he, he made it, common for people to say and do whatever they wanted to say and do, which, you know, I don't know if that's good or bad, but he made it a norm. He normalized it. And, you know, you can walk down the street. Now I live in Cobb County, which Mm -hmm. used to be a red County. Now it's blue, kind of purple. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, when I first moved here, we don't see it anymore, but when I first moved here, Confederate flags all over the place, you know, there was a, a used car lot not too far from my house that was, it's a used car lot. So all the cars are, you know, pieces of crap, but (laughs) ringed around the whole lot were Confederate flags, Confederate flags, uh, you know, rung the whole lot. This is right here in Cobb County a couple of years ago. So, you know, and you know, you can, I can still drive around my neighborhood and see Trump signs. I can still see Confederate signs. 
I can still see don't tread on me signs in people's yards. Um, so, you know, and no one has ever said anything to me or bothered me or anything like that. And I have great neighbors, but, you know, I know it's out here and I know that people are not afraid to show that it's out here as whereas opposed maybe 10 years ago, they would have probably been afraid to show it. Yeah. Ernie, we are now at that magic point of the time where we have actually had an highly engaging conversation. We want to thank you so much for joining us. Students, thank you all for being with us, too. We want to thank you all for, of course, joining us at the Intellectual Soul Food Lunch Buffet. And again, we will see you next week. And until then, be safe, be well. I put put that R. Kelly column that I wrote in in the comments. You did? Oh, wonderful. Perfect. All right, everybody. We're signing off. Look for us at Spotify and everything else. Take care. Be safe. Be well. Bye-bye.